0: Reflecting on the power of spiritual friendship When we have like-minded companions it supports us, encourages us joining together in one voice almost one voice for the morning chanting, evening chanting. A group of people united together with one purpose, one intention, one mind. One time, the Venerable Ananda and another monk were uh, discussing what was the, the, uh, the most important aspect of spiritual practice. And the one monk said, uh, meditation is, is all and everything. Ananda responded, well, I think spiritual friendship, kalyanamita, is, uh, is half of the holy life. Not just meditation, spiritual companionship, spiritual friendship. So the discussion goes back and forth, and then they take it to the Buddha to ask him what he says on the subject. So Ananda says, It's my feeling that spiritual friendship is half of the holy life, Lord. And the Buddha says, not so, Ananda, not so. Kalyanamita is not half of the holy life, it's the whole of the holy life. And as he explains, uses the word in two different ways. Spiritual companionship, Sangha. This is what supports us on a practical level, our, our commitment to a mode of practice, the Eightfold Path. Without that kind of support of like-minded friends encouraging us reflecting to us our own shortcomings Progress is, is extremely difficult practicing alone, we can become sure of our own rightness. We can easily believe in our own opinions and habits and rewrite them as dharma, just because it's what I prefer or what I assume. What seems reasonable? we can get so easily lost accordingly. But also, the Buddha used the word in the way, (coughs) the same way that uh, the, uh, in the Hindu mysticism, they would use the, the beloved, or in Sufi mysticism, It's both on a personal level and on a universal level. Kalyana means um, the beautiful, the spiritual, the wholesome. Kalyana. Mita is friend. So not only does it mean spiritual friendship, but it also means friendship with the spiritual, with the lovely. With the beautiful, and that as a, a synonym for ultimate reality, for truth. So, the whole of the holy life is on the one level spiritual friendship, on the internal level, our affiliation, our association with the lovely, with the beautiful with truth. The heart's attunement to a fundamental reality of things. Association, affiliation with the lovely, the kalyana. as the practice develops, we start out with maybe that kind of insight. Me being in companionship with you or or the heart, recognizing the lovely, the truth, realizing the Dhamma. But that's not the whole, the whole picture as long as there's me being in association with, with the lovely, with the truth, still incomplete. There was a conversation that occurred on a session between a Jesuit father, William Johnson, and DeRoshi Roshi, in the interview the Roshi asked him, So how's it going, Father? He said, Oh, it's great. All day I just... I'm just sitting there in the presence of God. The Roshi says, Oh, very good. Pretty soon God will disappear, and then they'll just be you. Then Father William says, Oh, that's strange. I thought I would disappear and they would, they would just be God. The Roshi replied, same thing. So the... the ultimate realization is the, the mind dissolving in identification with the ground of its own being. It's not me realizing the Dhamma. Me being with God. There's only, only this. We can use all kinds of synonyms, say Nibbana, emptiness, Niroda. We talk of silence or stillness, liberation. these words can only point in the vaguest way, making allusions, a shadow of a, of a fragment of an image, but what is leading us to is uh, consciousness which is unsupported, independent. There's a story in the suttas where um, someone's meditating and their thought forms in their mind, Where is it that the four great elements, earth, water, fire, and wind, fade out and cease to be? What is that state? And then the pathway to the heavens opens up before them and they visit, first of all, the the heaven of the four great kings. And they say, where is it that earth, water, fire, and wind fade out and cease to be? And the four great kings say, oh, we don't know. You better go and ask the gods of the Tava heaven ask King Saka, Indra. So he goes up and asks Indra. Indra says, oh, I don't know. he go and ask the gods of the Yama heaven. And so on, up and up and up and up. Till finally he gets to the heaven of Mahabrahma, the, uh, the lord of the universe. So he goes to the Mahabrahma's heaven and meets with his retinue. He says, could I speak to Mahabrahma, please? Mahabrahma is not around at the moment, but when he will manifest, a light appears. He waits for a while, and then a glow appears, and Mahabrahma manifests. He says, excuse me, sir. Could you tell me where is it that earth, water, fire, and wind fade out, finally, and cease to be? Mahabrahma replies, I am Brahma the great Brahma, the almighty, wielder of mastery, father and creator of all that are and are to be. Then the person replies, well, I didn't actually ask you that. I asked, where is it that earth, water, fire and wind finally fade out and cease to be? I am Brahma, the great Brahma, the almighty, the all-powerful, etc. So this goes on for a little while and finally Mahabrahma takes him by the elbow and leads him to one side and says friend, I do not know where it is that earth, water, fire and wind fade out and cease to be. You have done wrong in embarrassing me in front of my retinue. Also, you should have gone and asked the Buddha first of all, since he's your teacher. So he goes back down to earth and goes to the Buddha and brings a question. And the Buddha says, well, you should have asked the question in a different way. What you should ask is, where is it that earth, water, fire and wind can find no footing? Can find no foothold? Then he replies, where it is that earth, water, fire and wind can find no foothold is in the mind which is... Uh, vinyanang anidasanang anantang sabato pabang the mind which is anidasanang, invisible featureless, signless anantang, infinite sabato pabang, radiant in all directions accessible from all sides here it is that earth, water, fire and wind can find no footing so too, pure and impure, coarse and fine self and other, gross and subtle. Here it is, all these things can find no footing. Another time, the Buddha was talking with with one of his disciples and he said, if there's a, if you see a window and a shaft of sunlight coming through it, if there's a wall, it goes north-south, and the sun is to the east, and then uh, the sunlight shines through the window, where will it fall? It'll fall on the western wall, Lord. And if there's no western wall, where will it fall? On the floor, Lord. If there's no floor, where will it fall? On the ground, Lord. If there's no ground, where will it fall? On the water, Lord. If there's no water, where will it land? It won't land, Lord. Exactly so, He replies. If there is no basis, if we do not, if there's no grasping, then consciousness has no place to land, has no footing, no foothold. What this means is that we see, we feel, we hear, we think, as the body, the personality, the world, our wealth of responsibilities and duties, friends and enemies hopes and struggles. But in so far as they are held in pure awareness, there's no thing for them to land on. There's no place, no basis for them to land on. They're not turned into self or other, into this or that, to right or wrong, good or bad. They just are what they are. So peace is not a matter of doing away with certain experiences, conditions of mind, feelings. Peace is to do with right understanding. Holding things in the right way. Letting things go to their end, before great elements, earth, water, fire and wind, sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, thought. They arise, we hold them, we receive them. And if we let them go to their end, we know them without confusion. then the heart remains at peace we function in the world without confusion without disturbance with energy goodwill harmoniously Letting things go to their ending. This means when it's pleasant, we're not trying to keep it and hold it, own it. If it's painful, we're not trying to cut it off, destroy it, wipe it out. Or if it's neutral, we're not making anything out of it, creating opinions around it. the process of the practice is taking hold of whatever arises within us our expectations, our fears, our hopes our judgments is knowing them completely for what they are the four elements changing mindfulness, sati is that which takes hold of an object like the hand, what picks things up, cognizes. So if you think, I'm the only one on this retreat who's got really bad problems, everyone else is so serene and wise. Look at them, so calm, it's disgusting. It's only in my mind that's all over the place. I'm hopeless. The mind creates a judgment like this, so then we hear it, we hear a sound, a truck moving around outside, or someone clearing their throat, and a wave of annoyance, aversion arises. We, we bring to mind something that the heart gets impassioned about, someone that we're in love with, someone that we're in conflict with, whatever it might be. The form arises. Mindfulness is that which takes hold of it, the hand which picks it up. And sampajanya is clear comprehension. It means we see that object in a context. The object and what surrounds it. The context for the experience. We notice that or well, because I'm meditating, that sound is something I call annoying, because I don't want it to be there. If I wasn't meditating, it wouldn't bother me. It's just a sound. Or a self-critical thought. Now, this is just the, the self-critical, chattering mind. So we see the context, so that sampajanya, clear comprehension, is like the arm. And then the third element is panya, wisdom, which then is penetrating the very fabric of experience itself, that knows whether it's a self-critical thought, or the sound of a truck, or the, the feeling of conflict between you and your your child or your your partner. The love that you feel for your spouse. Panya, wisdom, is that which knows this is. Empty of substance, this is transient, this cannot be more than just a feeling, it comes, it goes, it changes. This cannot be who and what I am, this cannot be a self, an individual. This cannot be totally satisfactory, complete, it cannot be. It's only a sankara. A changing form, a pattern of consciousness. That's all. It is empty, sunya, sunyata. It is thus, it's this way. We see its suchness, tatata. So wisdom is that which illuminates experience, enables us to, to see the transparency of every thought, every feeling, the internally external, the subjective, the objective, the transparency of, of all experience these three work together. Panya is like the body, the heart, that the, ha- the arm and the hand are connected to. Sati, Sampajanya, Panya. Mindfulness, clear comprehension, wisdom. It's only when we apply wisdom then liberation occurs, just mindfulness itself. Attending to an object is only the first step. Unless we see it through to the end, it's still landing someplace. It's still me experiencing this thing, me doing this thing, me going someplace. And even if we comprehend it, we can explain the pattern. As long as there's A person who's the agent, the experiencer, we're giving it a place to land and birth and death keep whirling around Only with with wisdom, with Panya do we let things go to their end, like a river running down to the sea The hundred rivers flow in tumbling torrents down to the great ocean. The hundred rivers of thought and feeling, emotion, memory, imagination. They flow to the great ocean, to the deathless, to Nibbana. Now, looking at this in fine detail, we see that rooted in interest, all things are rooted in interest. A sound arises, a feeling, a memory. If there's interest, we start to concretize it into a thing. Rooted in interest are all things born of attention, are all things. When the interest stays on an object, we get interested in it, a solidification proceeds. Arising from contact are all things. What we hear, smell, taste, touch, see, feel, think. This is how we weave the world of things. Interest, attention, contact. Of the senses. We solidify the self and the world. And diverging into feelings are all things. So just as they're rooted, rooted in the earth, in interest, born of attention arising from the ground, arising from contact they diverge into feelings like the branches of a tree pleasant, painful, neutral I like, I don't like headed by concentration are all things when there's samadhi then whatever feelings arise they are they're gathered in they're met with they're known dominated by mindfulness they're contained by mindfulness attends to them, knows them surmounted by wisdom wisdom receives them all knows them all recognizes the qualities of suchness emptiness transiency in all of them surmounted by wisdom, are all things. Yielding deliverance is their essence, are all things. So when, when every experience, every thought and feeling, sensation is met with, with wisdom, is received into the listening heart, deliverance is what they yield, like the fruit of the tree. Deliverance is the yield. Merging with the deathless are all things. All things, all conditions merge with the deathless, reach to the deathless. The unborn, the unconditioned, original mind. Terminating in Nibbana are all things. Nibbana, the peace of the, the pure, open heart, is where thingness dissolves. There's still sight and sound, memory, ideas, but in that quality of awakeness, of thingness, separateness, of self and other, of me and the world is illuminated, dissolved. Thingness terminates, all things terminate in Nibbāna. the ocean of mind. Already the the last full day of the retreat is upon us. shoreline is coming into view. The feeling of expectation comes to the mind. Shore-dwelling birds start to land on the deck. The mind starts to, to create. Even if we've greatly appreciated this time together, still the, the habit of the desire mind is to, to create the future. My plans. Big M, big P. This is natural. This is uh, completely ordinary. Facing the unknown, the thinking mind, creates structures, expectations. We try to create the known out of the unknown, filling up the gap. This is uh, one of the best opportunities to really get to, to see that a quality of the mind surging forwards, becoming. Wanting to get on to the next thing, overlooking this, in order to get to that. for that seems more important than this. My future, my real life. So, especially today, tomorrow, most helpful to make, bring this clearly into consciousness, looking for this urge, examining this, this uh, state of mind which creates a future, which is being realistic about my plans, the things I've got to do, where I've got to go. It's all reasonable. Practical. Which is not to deny there's a practical element, but look what happens in the heart. That's the point. We create a model of the future and then go and try and inhabit it. Imbue it with importance. And we miss the present, we miss where life actually happens, we miss what we're creating. And we can look at that creation of the future expectation, whether we long for it or whether we're afraid of it or we're just creating thought about it. A puncture, conceptual proliferation. Either way, mixed feelings, dreading the responsibilities, looking forward to the supper. It was clearly look directly at that creation of the future. At this moment, the future is just an idea in our minds. Even the ending of this sitting, even the next breath, is just a concept we can create. There's a potentiality. But the future is always uncertain unformed, it does not exist. So to recognize the truth of that, that it's a potentiality that exists here and now, in the karmic formations of our own, our own mind, the structures of our life, the karmic wheels that are already in motion, of our responsibilities, relationships, agreements already put in place. That's what's there as a potentiality. What will happen, what what it will turn into, nobody knows. We cannot know. The practice of the, the Buddha's way is a uh, ultimate realism. We sketch a direction for our, for our life, for our day, but we put it all in pencil. Plans can be erased at any moment. One time the Buddha asked his disciples, How long is a human lifespan? One person said, Oh, a person can expect to live about 70 years, quite reasonably. The Buddha said, You do not understand my teaching. Now, asked the next person, They said, Oh, well, it's foolish to expect to live more than another year, That you don't understand my teaching either. Next one said, we really can't expect to live beyond dawny the next day. But it said, you don't understand my teaching either. Next one said, we, can, we cannot expect to live longer than it the time it takes to, to milk a cow. But it said, "You don't understand my teaching either." And finally, one said, "We can expect to live the time it takes from the beginning to the ending of an in-breath, or from the beginning to the ending of an out-breath, or the time it takes to swallow a piece of food that's already in our mouth." And the Buddha said, "You understand. That's how long we can expect to live, reasonably. Realistically. How many times in our life have we been moving purposefully towards something and suddenly have been obstructed? The car breaks down. We forgot something at home. The plane doesn't go. Snowstorm. All planes cancelled. Airport closed. Airline on strike. Phone call from mother. Come quick. Emergency. Suddenly, boop, it's gone all the things we had to do at the office, the things we were going to cook for supper, the people we were going to see that evening. What happened? So we reflect on what we create out of the future, out of that potentiality, which is here now we create these solid, concrete structures and then get pulled along by them. And the more concrete we make the future, the less conscious we are of the present. The same with the past. We overlook the present as some kind of insignificant detail while we inflate the past and the future into immense importance. Just to witness, this is a process that the mind is creating. It's not real, it's not essential. Ajahn Chah wants to find a a spiritual someone who practices the spiritual path, as one who has no future. Which doesn't mean to say that we're all useless beings, but that when the heart is truly attuned to reality, the future is left unformed. We don't know. So during today, tomorrow, as the mind forms its plans, urges take shape, just keep reminding yourself, don't know, don't know, future is uncertain. This is the kindest thing to be, we can do for ourselves. Don't think this is being unrealistic, or this is just monk talk. My calendar is probably more full than, full than yours is. But it's all in pencil. See what happens when, as the future takes shape, that starts to crystallize, and when you reflect, don't know, this is uncertain. Will I ever see those people again? How will it be? It's, it's threatening to the ego, to the self-sense, but it's liberating to the heart, in one and the same gesture. The heart is freed. Also, at the ending of a retreat, it's as we uh, have been doing at the ending of the afternoon, reflecting on the sharing of blessings, the ending of a retreat, it's a skillful thing to do, to put some attention. In your, in your practice, to consciously sharing the, the, the blessings, the goodness of your, of your life, with other beings. Conscious well-wishing, bringing to mind the different people who are here, different characters in your life, past or present, whether they're still alive or not to be consciously recollecting all of those who we live with, who have influenced us, whose lives are intimately mingled with our own. All those of the planet who are, whose lives have touched ours, who we have been connected with, closely or remotely. to take some time to, to bring such beings to mind, to arouse conscious well-wishing, going to your heart to generate that quality of, of kindness, Benevolence towards them. To arouse the intention, may that whatever goodness there is within my life, whatever goodness has been generated during this time, may it in whatever way be of benefit to these beings. May it benefit the world in this way. Whether it's people that we've, we've loved, or people that we've hated or conflicted with, people that we've been associated with, in whatever way. The power of kindness is, is tremendous. It can be subtle, but it's very potent. And our lives are intimately connected with the lives of all other beings, so we're consciously taking that connection and empowering it, making the form of that bond, the language of that bond, one of respect, affection well-wishing, making this an occasion to bring others to mind in as wise and all-encompassing and loving a way as possible. So we can imagine their names, or their faces, or the the countries where they live, whether it's people or or animals, or birds, the planet itself. Whatever attribute, aspect we feel connected with, however our heart disposes itself in this way, just to to bring that forth, to give energy to that. Also using this occasion, in terms of generating kindness, even though we've spoken it much during this time, to make sure that that you, yourself, are included in this. All of the errors that we've made, all of the shortcomings that we have, the judgments we make about ourselves. the hurt that we've done to others, the failures, the painful aspects of our life, to gather them in. Most often, if we were somebody else, we wouldn't be as hard on them as we are towards ourselves. If we knew as a as a friend, we wouldn't be half so critical of all the things that we've done, or thought, or felt. Much of what we create anguish about, if it was in another person, we just pass it off as charming quirks, interesting idiosyncrasies, insignificant mistakes. But it's so easy for us to be so self-critical, self-disparaging, that of all the beings in the world, we are the one that is least loved, most difficult to have affection for, forgiveness. So to really look at the different dimensions of our character, our memories, our our, our way of picturing who and what we are this collection of memories and impulses powers qualities of being and whatever aspects of our character or our actions, how we've been, how we've acted. Gathering it all in and whatever has been, has been done poorly or carelessly or selfishly. Gathering that in, feeling it, knowing it, and arousing the intention to do better in the future. And to know that was a mistake, that was done out of foolishness, that was done out of ignorance, that was done on a blind impulse. Fair enough, that's how life is. We see the painful result of it, so we use that painfulness to help us to endeavor to do better in the future. We turn it to our advantage, like plowing in the weeds to to become fertilizer to nourish the soil. A profound forgiveness, grandheartedness towards our own shortcomings. Letting this quality of kindness be like a, a warm light that we generate at our heart center. You can figure it in different ways. And use your, also use the rhythm of the breath to help center the attention with it. It's like a warm light, a golden light. We generate from our, our heart center, filling our own body, our being, spreading forth from us towards every corner of our, of our own, of our own being. And around us to the beings of the world, impartial, all-pervading. Universal kindness. Through every cell of the body, every bone, every tendon, every organ. Through the whole world, wrapping, wrapping the whole world, the entire planet Limitless, unbounded, unstoppable, holding our own being, holding the world in this infinite heart. We can do this. This we're capable of. And As we do this, let's see how the world is transformed. And we become an object of love. The world becomes the beloved. And the world is transformed. We are transformed. into the beautiful, beautiful in the beginning, beautiful in the middle, beautiful in the ending.